Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as always by my bestie, my BFF, my boon companion, Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, man? I'm doing really well, guys, and Happy New Year! We happen to be recording just the two of us all alone in the studio on New Year's Day. Yes, but we're actually joined、uh, remotely by、uh, a bunch of. Excellent questions that have been written to us and and called in for our end of year call-in show. Let's make this a tradition, man. Yeah. Okay. So、uh, this is cool. We have a bunch of questions. We we ask people to just simply、um, record or, or or email us in questions that they they had、uh, that we were just going to take on, and we've not really listened to these very carefully or, or thought about these. So this is going to be totally by the seat of your. It is、pants. New Year's Day after all. That's right. Last night I wasn't doing my homework. Yeah. Ne- neither was I. I was.、Um, Doing some something else, something considerably more hedonistic,、uh, but that's neither here nor there. So let's let's start off with one、uh, a call-in question. This one comes from Matt Matt Sheehan, actually, who is a、uh, writer here for the Huffington Post, and he asks the following: Hi guys, I wanted to hear your take on the nature of the current anti-corruption campaign, specifically what kind of indicators you would look at in judging the motivations behind the campaign. I think a lot of us have a gut feeling, one way or another, as to whether this is just a purge to consolidate power for power's sake, or whether it's an attempt to, you know, clear the way for reforms. But are there any sort of specific indicators that you would look to in the year or years ahead if you want to understand the real motivations behind what's happening? Thanks very much. So yeah, Jeremy,、uh, the the question is, you know. Is it either or? I, I don't think it is necessarily an either or situation. I think that that、um, there happens at this point to be such an overlap between sort of you know his his、uh, purge urge, you know the 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 the, the, the purge urge、right. of Xi Jinping. Exactly, is between Xi Dada and his his desire to sort of clear the field of political rivals,、uh, especially. I mean, you know, look look at the people who've been taken down. The 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 tigers among the tigers and flies that he's taken down, at least so far, have all been、uh, pretty clearly his political rivals, and there, there aren't any that. But at the same time, I mean, if you if you look further down, there are people with with no clear political connection to him at all. I don't think it's neither or situation. I think that that the priority, of course, I mean, if he's going to be able to continue a、uh, a, a an anti corruption drive, and I think it's actually a new normal. I think that you know what Wang Qishan's done right now, that the.、Uh, What, what's it called? The、uh, CDIC, it, the Central Dis- Discipline Inspection Commission. That's right. Okay. Yeah.、Uh, sorry. <laughs> this is very what, difficult what with Gapafert and you know all these new ministries. It's it's quite difficult to to keep the them off terms, right?、Online. Especially you know after last night's revelry.、Um, The for me, if if I were to look for indicators, obviously it would be for high level targets who、uh, were either. Neutral or, or or non non political rivals of his,、uh, in other words, people who who sort of belonged to the same factional camp who were also,、uh, you know, who happened to be sort of conspicuously corrupt.、Um, I do think it, it's a, a new normal. I don't, I don't think that this is something. I mean, it's gone on already much much longer than anyone had, had thought was likely. I do also think that you know, despite the fact that obviously the factional elements, the purge, is 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 definitely one side of things going on. It's not a completely cynical thing at all. There is a genuine attempt to clean up the government.、Um, people like me wonder if it'll truly be possible to do if. They don't have any kind of separation of powers, you know. When which organization in history has ever policed itself successfully? I mean, that's my question of 
you know, what they can really get done. But I, I mean, I do think there's a genuine cleanup going on. Yeah, it's a very um, fair question. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, to me, the one signal of this being a really genuine attempt at building rumor, r- rule of law in the sense that Westerners mean it and political reform in the sense that Westerners mean it would be if uh, second gener- uh, if, if, if red aristocrats, second generation reds, people like C, if they started going down, because as far as I know, there's not one that's yet gone down, and that is some kind of indicator. Right. Okay, um, great. That was a, a great way to start. Nice, serious question. Let's find one that isn't maybe quite as serious. Um, okay, here's one uh, from Maria Bell, uh, who is calling from suburban New Jersey, New York City, and she asks, over the course of 2014, Western journalism has been has been keen to point out the instabilities within the Chinese power structure. I view the overall situation as irony-laden and interesting to watch. Reminds me of a very polite boxing match. Will any gloves come off over the austerity campaign? This is related, of course. How does China's domestic media report on the topic? And Jeremy, you're a keen observer of China's domestic media. And so how has uh, Chinese reporting on, I think she means uh, the, the anti-corruption drive, uh, how how does that compare with with Western coverage of it? Well, um, well, <laughs> uh, you know, Western coverage obviously tends to point out the flaws. You know, basically the argument that I've just been be, been making about you know how can an organization police itself without separation of powers and is this just a purge? Uh, I mean, are questions that pretty much every Western article on the a- anti corruption campaign will allude to. Uh, those questions are not at all uh, available in Chinese media reports. The Chinese media reports are, uh, you know, uh, essentially uh, cheer- cheerleading the campaign. Um, and I think uh, that the campaign and the media uh, reporting of it um, has done a great deal to uh, shore up Xi Jinping's popularity um, because a lot of people are very happy to see these big fat cats go down, um, even though many of them you know, cynically also kind of know the system is still rigged against them and it doesn't really affect their daily lives. But there's a kind of schadenfreude. And I think uh, the the clever use of the media uh, has contributed to uh, Xi Jinping's popularity. The other aspect to it, of course, is that they are encouraging citizens to report corrupt behavior through all kinds of means. There's a website, there's a hotline you can call. Uh, you know, some of the media reports uh, publicize um, these means of reporting corrupt officials. So it's also part of the the campaign to actually get the corrupt officials. I don't know whether you saw an amazing Reuters report, uh, a really nice long meaty piece uh, that was talking about the way that the anti-corruption drive has been used by some people to target their own enemies in business through precisely those things, handing reporters dossiers full of private investigations. That, that well, of course. I mean, this is a, a standard sort of playbook in China, isn't it? I That's mean, right. When Dunway.org was blocked, my original website way back in 2009, I still don't know the reason why, but my strongest theory involves somebody reporting me, uh, and it was a business rivalry. Um, right. So, I mean, I, I, I would think that, that there's got to be a lot of that going on. That was an outstanding piece, by the way. But um, yeah, you wouldn't see things like that written about by the Chinese media. Instead, no. you'll see a lot of the cheerleading. You'll see, you know, the actual item by item uh, description of, you know, all these ill-gotten gains by by these mm. uh, 
But you also hear a lot of sort of anecdotes about how, um, and, and I, I, I encounter plenty of these myself. I mean, I see this all the time. I hear the, uh, about this all the time, you know, quite a pile of anecdotal evidence about how it's actually reached down into uh, businesses that have been in some way peripherally related to corruption. I mean, everything from, you know, these uh, re- rental lawai kinds of businesses, which, or even even things like, uh, I know that um, my school where I send my children, you're no longer they no longer charge that janju fei. You're not you're not allowed to ask for a donation to to schools because it's seen as a form of corruption. Right, right. And so, uh, yeah, I think that the. The, the Chinese media has picked up on things like this. And, and I think the Chinese media coverage will continue to be very interesting uh, to follow because, uh, you know, there is the danger that at some point people start thinking, well, hang on a minute. How did this guy who's on the Politburo, you know, end up uh, like this? Um, so the, the the messaging from the party and the uh, Wang Tishan, I think, is, is just going to be a very interesting thing to follow in 2015. Well... Let's let's talk about uh, let's let's actually listen to another another question. This one comes from Jesse Appel, who's been a guest on the show, uh, who is a a, a stand up comic, uh, really the best known foreign stand up comic in China after Dashan. We could probably say at this point. <laughs> yeah, although I mean D- Dominic is pretty pretty famous these days. Anyway, Plastic here, here we go. Here we go. Dominic, yeah, here we go. Hey there, Kaiser and Jeremy. This is Jesse Appel. I'm happy to be having the chance to call in and ask a question of your show. So I'll be getting right to it. Uh, my question is, in the coming year, do you see the restrictions that are apparently going to be placed on foreign media coming into China, uh, do you see those restrictions spreading out into Chinese language content produced inside of China? Are, is this sort of more like a precursor for what we're going to be seeing in terms of a tighter internet restriction in content? Or is this just a, um, you know, a tool that's being used to be able to control what type of foreign concepts come in through the, like the major channels and major distribution? Uh, let me know what you think. Be interested to hear what you guys think about that. And I uh, hope you guys are having a great start to a new year. Thanks. Well, Jesse, I mean, first of all, I would say that, you know, d- domestic media, entertainment and culture have always been under tighter restrictions than than foreign media. I mean, there's never been a time without restrictions. You can't just publish books without a publishing license. You can't make films without, you know, approval from SAFT or as they are now known together with GAP. Gaffart. Um, that sounded like Afrikaans. <laughs> it's um, so. I mean, and I, I would also say that uh, you know, looking at the official pronouncements, starting from the very top of Xi Jinping's you know so-called you know Yan'an Forum on the Arts, the signals are very much that the arts and entertainment and culture will be required to reflect traditional. Uh, Chinese values uh, will be required to not uh, show too much Western influence. Uh, there will be uh, more Puritanism on on, on sex uh, and you know showing illicit affairs and TV programs and films. I think the next few years, winter is coming for culture and the arts in China, and. You know, maybe after that, when Sidada has figured out beaten all his opponents and decides he can chill out a bit, the spring will come again. But I think the next few years are going to be very tough for uh, independent-minded uh, culture, uh, media, arts workers. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you there. Uh, I think there's a lot of, of misunderstanding about um, the nature of censorship and the idea that it is directed primarily at the, the the nefarious influences of you know American television programming or or, or um, American film, 
uh, or even you know these these uh, American journalists who are who are here. That that's that's actually misplaced. I think that there's always been, and there always will be more concern. I mean, let's take internet censorship just as an example. You know, there's a focus, of course, on the the Great Firewall as preventing access by Chinese internet users to your Facebook, your YouTube, your Twitter, your New York Times, your Bloomberg. The, the list goes on these days, but. Still, the uh, truly massive resources of the state are, are aimed at domestic stuff. Precisely, yeah. precisely. So, I mean, this is the same the same sort of thing. It's just you know, uh, you know, as as we speak, we were just reading the news in the last couple of days that Li Bingbing's new film on Wu Zetian, the um, Empress uh, TV program, right? Was it a TV program? Was it a TV program? I thought it was a TV program. Oh yeah, right, right. It was a, like it, one sorry, that's, that's episode, right. and then they that's they right. That's what it was. It was because a TV the boob, program. too many right. boobs, too many, too much cleavage. Right. Yeah. Right. And you know, I, I, you know, being somebody who who likes those sorts of things, I you didn't weren't happy. Well, yeah, it's not going to be great. I mean, there is a tightening, and uh, it's very sad. But okay, well, um, there's your answer, Jesse, and uh, uh, hopefully, it will not reach to stand-up comedy as performed by the likes of you. But it will reach to you if you get big enough. Mark my words. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Great. okay um doug uh has a a question for us if you could give any advice to recent college graduates interested in all things china what would it be more specifically with recent crackdowns on legal work visas for 22 year olds would you still recommend they come by way of english teaching um you want to take a crack at that? I, I mean, let, let, me, let me just quickly review what the, the rules are right now for, for visas. I mean, this is something that's affected me personally because I, I can't, for example, hire interns very easily. Uh, you, you have to have two years of work experience or be and be over the age of 25 in order to be given a Z visa, at least in Beijing. I think that's probably true of all major Chinese cities. Is that is that correct? I think those are the rules. Uh, this being China, the the rules and what happens might not be the same. Sure, but I, I would never encourage anyone to come in and teach English, you know, sort of on a dodgy. I'm just coming on an F or or, or a, a, a an X or an L visa and then go on to teach English. I think not because so much because you're breaking the law, which is of course one reason, but the other is because you you really leave yourself very vulnerable to exploitation. Um, by those dodgy English teaching schools. Now, that said, coming to China uh, and and um, after college, I, there's nothing I would more highly recommend to anyone. I mean, coming here and spending a couple of years, it can be done. It can be done, uh, you know, you, you, you don't need necessarily to, or I mean, you, if you have parents of means, especially. <laughs> but, uh, there, there are all sorts of things. There's Fulbright scholarships. There's all sorts of scholarships now available for people who want to come to try to study in China. I don't, I don't think that the dodgy English teaching uh, path is necessarily. I, I think it's one. terrible. I mean, I think it's terrible because you, you you'll end up working for a dodgy company in illegal circumstances, doing a horrible, boring job, being exploited, uh, probably being misrepresented to the parents in some way. They'll say you're a professor, you know, whatever. I mean, it's uh, it's just dodgy, and and the other people doing it are not people that you you know they're dodgy people a, a lot of the time. So, so Jeremy, um, what, 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 what should what should they be doing? What should a recent anything, college graduate study? Do, do graduate study, get a job in Hong Kong, do you know, uh, get a tourist visa and come for three months and then go away and come back. I mean, I think, 
I find um, people in their 20s now, compared to basically our generation, which is kind of Generation X, I guess. I don't mm. know if you've, you know, we're basically sure. born in the late 60s and 70s and even maybe early 80s. I think we, we are the generation of extended adolescence um, where... Um, basically, you know, many of our peers, you know, maybe I'm talking about myself, you know, they basically only settle down when they were 40. Oh, um, oh. <laughs> and you you and me both. <laughs> similar guy. Um, it seems to me that uh, recent graduates are really encouraged to get very, very serious, like, you know, even before they're graduated. I mean, they're, they're, they really are um, wanting to grow up very quickly, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, when you're in your 20s, I think you sh- if you're interested in China, just come here by hook or by crook, even if Preferably the only option crook. is a... Dodgy, dodgy English, English teaching job. I mean, just you're in your twenties. What do you got to lose? I mean, you know, lose a little. Give. Well, I mean, I, I have to. I mean, I've said it before on this show, and I'm going to say it again. I am just continuously blown away by the quality of the young people coming to China from from outside. I'm people who I just randomly run into. Do you remember the young man? Maybe it's because they take themselves. Uh, yeah, I mean, more, they're, more they're incredibly mature. Did, I mean, yeah. they, they speak tremendously good Chinese, yeah. much better. I mean, and they they have uh, extremely open minded attitudes. They're not. I think um, they don't have quite the, the political baggage often that, that I've, I've, I've seen in, in people, people of my own generation. Right? Right. Yeah, no, sure. It's, uh, but yeah, I would say come, just come. I mean, if, if this place fascinates you, then be, be here, you know, whatever you have to do. And there's loads of ways to get here. Okay. Our friend Christine Liu has a, a question for us that kind of talks about the other way. So my question is related to what kind of China you see 10 years from now given where things are heading over the last couple years, um, specifically in relation to the China going global story, because from my perspective, living here in the U.S., but having worked in China and maintaining you know, cross-border ties, I'm interested in understanding what that impact is going to be on China you know, when you have over 100 million Chinese traveling overseas and experiencing countries and cultures for the first time hundreds of thousands of students studying overseas and then coming back. Uh, The China going global story of Chinese entrepreneurs being influenced by the West and um, coming back and adapting those ideas, or even Chinese companies who are expanding overseas um, and being influenced by by that experience. Uh, And most importantly, the power base, the wealth, um, and the, the, the business leadership, uh, that China going global experience of, you know, many of them, quite frankly, living overseas or having family overseas or investing overseas. Um, Fast forward 10 years from now, what does China look like? Is this a China that's going to be friendlier and more integrated into the international community? Yeah, great question. I mean, there's many parts to it, of course. Um, and God, Christine, your voice is just lovely. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, take a shot. I mean, ten years out, what what happens? I mean, all, I, you know, all this I almost feel like ten years isn't quite enough to answer the the the, the breadth and depth of that the, <laughs> the the question. I almost think you have to take it a little bit further to kind of see where it's really going. But I mean, starting even now, 
travel uh, abroad, education abroad of Chinese people, buying property abroad means that they are going to inevitably become more cosmopolitan and sophisticated and going to have a better understanding of other ways of doing things aside from, you know, mainland China. And I think that those uh, more pluralistic and cosmopolitan uh, attitudes will start to show in China. But I don't know if 10 years is really enough to see something really significant. But I think that is an unstoppable trend. It's not just the culture. I mean, when a Chinese person has a house in America, they will not want China to go to war with America, to put it very simply. And the more trade, the more, um, you know, mutual, uh, more connections, uh, uh, the, the more assets people have all over the world, the more cosmopolitan China will become. And I think that's a great thing. I absolutely agree with everything you said, including the time period. I think, yeah, 10 years may not be enough for us to see the full effects of it. Uh, I am a you know gigantic cheerleader for exchange of all kinds. I think that that kind of, of, of mixing, mingling, cosmopolitanism, I mean, it will drive the kind of uh, convergence that I think is ultimately healthy for China and good for China, good for the United States as well. Um, good for the world. Uh, I think that the, yeah, I, I can't encourage it more. Uh, but there will be a lot of bumps on the road. Yeah, of course because, be. I mean, you know, just think of the ugly American that terrified Europe, you know, big fat people, you know, rude and obnoxious with no manners, you know, uh, looking down on Europeans after the Second World War. Uh, I mean, this is much worse. There are so many more Chinese people. And, you know, some of our fellow uh, residents of China, perhaps who live in smaller cities, I mean, some of them have quite appalling manners, as we've seen in these airline incidents recently. So, I mean, that on a sort of personal level, I think you're going to see a lot of friction because of this change. And you're going to see a lot of friction because of Chinese people buying property and businesses in other countries. You're starting to see it already in places like Australia and New Zealand and parts the United States. Let's talk Europe. about the other part of her question, which was about Chinese uh, co- companies. I'm mean, just talking about entrepreneurs, but let's go straight to the big brands. Let's talk about you know how Chinese companies are doing. It. How how are they faring? Is they're they're going abroad, and where will they be in ten years? Uh, I, I personally, uh, I'm guardedly optimistic. Though I, again, I think there's going to be incredible barriers to try to overcome. We've seen them already stumble into many of the same sorts of pitfalls that we've seen American companies stumble into as they've tried to enter China. Just um, they, they, they don't necessarily, they aren't uh, by nature very good at building brands. Let's let's face it. I mean, this is an example I've used many in many conversations I've had before. But Jeremy, think back, you know, 25 years ago when Japan was the world's largest exporter of consumer electronics. It's all their own brands. Right. It's their own brands. And and if you would ask any American or European to rattle off the names of five Japanese electronics brands, I mean, these are these polysyllabic foreign words, but they they were they came easily to mind, right? Mm. I mean, people knew Hitachi or Toshiba or mm. what have, Mitsubishi or what have you. Maybe they weren't making so much electronics, but... Uh, I mean, they knew them to such an extent that growing up in South Africa, it wasn't until, I don't know how old I was, when I realized that, you know, uh, uh, Panasonic, <laughs> Sony, etc. were actually Japanese, you know, Japanese or sharp, they weren't right. kind of whitey people who'd made them. <laughs> right, and then you look at China, I mean, which dwarfs Japan now in terms of the amounts of, 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 of uh, the percentage of the world's consumer electronics exported by, manufactured in China. And we do not have dominant brands out there. Qingdao is the only 
No, that's like, not an electronics recognizable brand. I mean, higher is not right. an electronics. I mean, a Lenovo maybe, but only because they bought the IBM PC division. I mean, there isn't really a a, a now. I, I I would say that so far the one that has the best shot is Xiaomi, right? I mean, they they've so far done a pretty damn good job getting yeah. out there in the world. Uh, some of the, the Chinese internet companies, I think, will probably do okay. Um, they will, and I think they'll they're also good at M and A. So I mean, the internet companies are going to buy stuff and own it, right? So. Um, uh, You'll 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 see a lot of things that may not look Chinese, but are Chinese owned. But right now, let's face it: the brand China works against Chinese brands, right? You don't. I mean, you go out there in the world and you do not loudly trumpet the fact that you are a China China brand. I mean, because no. you you get tarred by this particular brush, and yeah. it tars all Chinese brands in, in so many ways. So there are uh, considerable difficulties for Chinese brands trying to trying to operate in in, in the rest of the world. Anyway, I think that was a terrific question, um, and. Let us move on uh, to another one that, that comes in from, let's see, um, here we have one from Patrick Lum. Hi, Kaiser and Jeremy, and to any other guests, there are none. Patrick from Sydney here, and I'm currently living in Japan and was wondering if you had any recommendations on media, podcasts preferably, to follow to stay up to date on Japan-centric issues in the same way that Seneca tackles China-focused issues, especially with regards to regional tensions. I found so far that any English-facing media tends toward niches or straight reporting rather than any good discussion with a large variety of expert guests in the manner of Seneca, so any recommendations would be appreciated. Well, first, thanks very much, Patrick. That's very kind of you. And uh, I have to plead abject ignorance. I do not know of of podcasts related to Japan, do you, Jeremy? Not really. I, you know, back in the sort of old old gold, what we used to call the golden days of blogs, when there were so many fewer blogs, like there was an Asia Pacific blog community of right. sense, and I used to follow them, but it's sort of fallen apart. Um, I would recommend one thing, which is there's an investigative journalist named Jake Edelstein. Oh yeah, absolutely. Who wrote a book called I think Tokyo Vice. Um, about and he's somebody. I think he's the gaijin, the foreigner who knows uh, the yakuza the best. Yeah, you know, Pete uh, Hessler wrote a great New Yorker piece about him. About him, that's yeah, right. Yeah, it was great. And he's on Twitter, um, and I would follow him and figure out what he's reading or listening to, uh, or listening if, to. If, if, yeah, if that were the case, and, and if indeed there are any, um, and you know, again, like so many things, I, I, I would I hope that readers who do or listeners who do know about such things. Uh, would tell us. We'd gladly uh, post that on our, on our on our page. Yeah, I'd be particularly interested in a blog that covers China-Japan relations from Japan because, you know, our circle tends to all be China people. Right. Uh, I mean, China's a, a pretty pretty big one. Right? Yeah. Um, let, me, let me throw out another one uh, that came in via email here. Uh, this, is, this is another one that's, that we're going to have to sort of we can deal with quickly and just by way of apology hi guys long time listener first of all thanks for a great podcast in particular the recommendations are often interesting but I've noticed they don't always get translated to a list of URLs on the associated webpage it seems like bad form to complain about perks on top of a labor of love but uh, consider this email a delicately poised whinge <laughs> or take this as evidence that at least one of your faceless audience highly values those links Regards, Daniel. Daniel, I'm sorry, man. Yeah, Daniel, thanks. You know, we wish it too, but as you point out, it is a labor of love, and it sometimes is all we can do to actually record the podcast, and we just don't always have 
the time and the day, or maybe it's Jeremy, the energy. I, th- I think I think we need to explain to people about this podcast and about what it actually doesn't make goes any down. money at all. In well, fact, it just sucks up our time and potentially gets us into trouble. <laughs> well, no, but it's it's. <laughs> but uh, so I mean, I don't know if you know what goes into it, though. I mean, you know, it's actually not easy for us to book guests every week, right? Uh, it's it's not easy for us to to uh, come up with interesting topics. It's not easy for for me. I mean, I actually have to take quite a bit of time. You know, outlining stuff and coming up with reasonably good questions. I have to read a lot of books that I might not ordinarily Absolutely. have read. Um, it requires it, preparation. Yeah, so uh, um, so consider that a delicately poised whinge. Uh, we we, we hear your whinge and we uh, we match you a uh, whinge for another whinge. whinge. <laughs> I'll see that whinge and raise you one yeah. whine. Uh, I I um I do apologize and I we'll place, place the blame squarely on our our fucking on Stefano. Yeah, Stefano. Stefano, it's your fault. But he, he's no, he's he's our ridiculously overqualified uh, in, intern, so-called yeah. intern. We we had uh, our former intern uh, Hudson Lockett, who's now uh, writing and writing wonderfully uh, down in Shanghai for the, the China Economic Review. Uh, he was pretty good about it, I have to say. He was yeah. pretty good about getting all the links up. Yeah. Anyway, um, we'll go to another recorded question here. This one comes from Kaisa Cantola. Hello, my name is Kaisa, and I'm calling from Beijing. My question concerns the legitimacy of the Communist Party rule. I keep seeing mentions about the legitimacy of the Communist Party rule in the Western media, and quite often it appears in the context of different actions by the Chinese government and how these actions are seen as necessary for the continuation of the party's survival and also as something that is done in order to legitimize the rule of the party. And some authors and scholars argue that the Communist Party of China is experiencing a crisis of legitimacy. Do you think that this is correct? And if yes, then what are the main issues threatening the party rule, and what are the most obvious actions that the party is taking in order to solidify its legitimacy in the eyes of the world? Thank you for all the excellent podcasts this year. I wish all the listeners and the Seneca Podcast crew a very happy new year. Thanks, Kaisa. Uh, Kaisa was basically our, our 1,000th like on Facebook, so we sent her a, uh, a book. At some and point. maybe you should point out her name is not K A I S A, right? Kaisa. I guess it's like probably you know the Finnish um, equivalent of my name, maybe or something, the feminized Finnish equivalent of my name. Anyway, I, I have plenty of time for somebody with a name so similar to mine. Uh, so let's give her a good answer. Uh, Jeremy, do you believe in? performance legitimacy yeah i do i mean i would say there would there, there, there are two things i would answer uh, uh, two links i would recommend in answer to this one is your kaiser essay that's been doing the rounds on quora about basically answering the question why don't chinese people hate their own government um trying to you know address this uh, perception gap where westerners tend to think well you know of course all chinese people must think they're a bunch of horrible commies and hate them and that's not the case here um and uh, Arthur Krober's recent essay, which I recommended previously on uh, Xi Jinping's China, Get Used to It, I think it's called. Yeah, you um, know, I love that essay. It's great. It's I mean, just one I of the best. So just sound and common sense, really. But because people are so screwed up, it gets called contrarian. But you know, <laughs> for stating like a blindingly obvious fact that China is a successful authoritarian country, that's a contrarian view. I mean, I did, you know, what are these, what, where can I get these drugs? I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, I should move to Colorado. I mean, maybe that's where they're living um so 
legitimacy. I mean, I think there is performance legitimacy. I mean, every day that Chinese people go to work without complaining and then go home and then deposit the money in the bank in China in a Chinese bank account legitimizes the government. Um, you know, no matter what you can argue, uh, uh, you know, they, the China, whether you blame it on, uh, you, uh, you, you say it's the government did it or, or, um, or the people, millions, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. Um, and you can't say that the government just got out of the people's way and, that, you know, uh, they have no share, no credit for that. You know, I, I mean, we've seen with our own eyes in this country the incredible uh, um, outlays in the infrastructure. And outlays in infrastructure. Right. But no, I was going to say, you know, people's living standards. Sure. I mean, you know, when I got to Beijing in 1995, people who had middle class jobs, you know, shat in a dirty trench in the middle of the capital of China. You know, and there's still a few of them doing that, <laughs> but not very many. I, I have shat in dirty trenches. <laughs> you know, many of them are now have Japanese toilets that kind of give you an enema, you know, instead of the... the, the I track. have had such an so, enema. I mean, I, uh, to me, this is definitely one kind of legitimacy. And every day that the people don't go out on the streets and riot, you know, it's a kind of legitimacy. And it's a kind of legitimacy that sits very uncomfortably with most Western commentators. Right, because they presume that legitimacy needs to be conferred at the ballot box, right? There is that assumption. That, right? Yeah. But yeah, I think that, that... And whereas you and I tend to agree on a lot of things about the Chinese government, I think that ballot box obsession is one thing we do agree on, that I, I don't feel that, you know, a, a Western-style election is the only way to legitimize a government. Very good. I mean, I think we're again in agreement, which is astonishing. Today, so far, we're we're doing pretty well, Jeremy. We're, yeah. Well, we haven't talked about. Well, you know, well, I won't bring it up. Let's see if we can find. Let's see if we can find <laughs> something one that, to argue about. We will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see if we can find one that that's a little more. Um, let's see here. What do we have? Hi, this is Josh from just outside the Fifth Ring Road in Beijing. I feel like there is more and more of a push towards nationalistic thinking in the media lately. For a while it was one world, one dream, but now the world is out and we're left with the Chinese dream. When is the big day coming where Big Daddy Xi kicks us all out and shuts down the borders? Even if it's not likely, what signs would we expect to see if they decided to lead us through another mass upheaval of everything and get the population and our thinking back on track? Good question. Uh, I think this here's one maybe where we're we're not going to see things completely eye to eye. Right, All right. Jeremy? Well, then you start. <laughs> okay. No. So I I think that uh, there has been an uptick in anti foreign rhetoric. There's no question about that. That you see more references to. Uh, I mean, there was, Bill Bishop just shared something t today talking about a, a uh, PLA article talking about uh, how China in two, 2015 needs to be more watchful of, for example, color revolutions instigated by. Uh, by by Western powers and and you know sort of the ins insidious ways in which they're they're trying to in kind of affect genetic change in China. There is a lot of this. There's no question about that. Uh, I think that uh, some time ago during the APAC uh, uh, the APEC uh, summit, there were three articles in fact that came out in the Christian Science Monitor and the, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal that we talked about here on this very show that addressed. Just precisely this issue that talked about why it is uh, that you know we've seen so much more kind of angry nationalist rhetoric emanating from uh, party-controlled media organs, uh, and I think that there are, there are other people who would say that, that that that's actually manifested itself too 
in treatment to foreigners locally here. Three years ago, there was there was this kind of um, kind of mad moment where um, you know it, it just sort of perfect storm of, of foreigners behaving badly and certain English language television programming hosts on CCTV behaving even more badly, uh, arguably. Uh, so what I would say, I would push back is, is we, we do need to kind of see what the world looks like through Beijing's window. We, we need to, to look at, you know, why it is. Uh, I mean, I don't think this is paranoia coming out of absolutely no, nowhere. I don't think that it's right. I don't think that it is, uh, it is grounded in a reality, but I think that I can easily empathize with why they would have arrived at this particular perception. I mean, looking at, um, you know, the, the policy of the pivot or the, the rebalancing, if you will, which is always seen as some species of containment. Looking at, uh, for example, uh, American support for every color revolution that's come along. Uh, when China uh, looks at the United States, for example, trumpeting internet freedom, it sees uh, this as a one of the, the the handiest and most maybe useful and most go-to tools in the same toolbox that they've been using to undo authoritarian regimes around the world. And you know, I mean, I, I said this kind of jokingly in um, somewhere online. I was writing. I said, if if everyone in in the West banged on about how aluminum foil could bring down the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and you know the the reporters were saying it, and the the uh, the NGOs were saying it, and uh, the Western governments were saying it, all talking about aluminum foil. You can be sure that there'd be a massive crackdown in China on aluminum foil. Uh, I just I feel like it's it's uh, inevitable, but it's kind of counterproductive in in some sense uh, for uh, us to, to. I mean, it's not surprising. Let's let's say for. Uh, the Chinese government to react the way that it does when internet freedom is always being sort of waved in its face as something that ought to be threatening to its continued existence. Okay, well, I'm not going to exactly disagree with you, but let me sort of talk kind of the, the, the thoughts that come to my mind about this, which is, is that um, I don't really like the current government's policies on culture, internet, media. In fact, I really don't like them. Neither do I. Um, uh, and I think that some of what they're doing by building up nationalism, by purging Western ideas, ideas about separation of powers from universities, from think tanks like the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, from the government itself, what, building up this, you know, personality cult that is a real thing with Xi Jinping, the Xi Dada stuff, um, uh, continued reference is an important part of sort of the way party talk, the party talks about China of you know the uh, century of humiliation. You are building up the conditions that are ripe for if something terrible goes wrong in China um, to have foreigners massacred on the streets or deported or, or something like that. Um, I think the atmosphere is becoming more. Um, it's making it more likely that a terrible event could bring back a kind of nationalism that is very extreme. I don't think that's very likely to happen. I mean, I think you'd have to have an epidemic, you know, something that caused a war with, you know, a neighboring country, something really, really extreme. Uh, but if it did happen, I think the conditions have been made much worse um, uh, in, in the sense of Chinese xenophobia and nationalism and anti-foreignism. 
Yeah, I, I think I would agree. Again, I'm, I find myself agreeing with you that the conditions have been made much worse, and it's it's counterproductive. I think ultimately it's shooting itself in the foot by doing this sort of thing. And it's, it's kicking it's actually, the can, it's, for some issues. It's kicking the can down the road. You know, you're using a a certain kind of stakhanovite attitude to to the people you urge them on and you know and nationalism is part of it and uh you know it could go wrong um so what will i mean his specific question was what signs will we see before you know the foreign blood runs in the streets um i think you have to see a lot more extreme nationalism than you're seeing now yeah, it's just not. I mean, it's it's nowhere near that point right now. I think you're safe in the fifth ring road. Yeah, outside the safe. So outside the fifth ring road. Yeah, be, or be, inside. Be, no, yeah, on either side of the fifth ring road. Well, let's go on. I, I actually, I, I know I have the recording of it somewhere, but I'm going to just read the. Um, I, for some reason, I'm not able to find it this moment. So I'm going to read what Sam writes to us. Throughout 2014, Seneca has covered a number of Western competitive sports in China, such as American football golf and debating. One Western import that China is increasingly becoming more dominant in is chess. The current world women's number one is Hou Yifan, and there are five Chinese chess grandmasters rated over 2,700, which I, I take it is a very, very high rate, rating. What's your experience with chess in China? Is it being driven by passionate teachers like the Chongqing Dockers, or is it seen as a tick on the resume, like debate class. The Chongqing Dockers, by the way, were the, the, the team that was covered by uh, the, this this uh, amazing, wonderful piece by our, our friend Chris, Chris Beam, uh, in the, the, the New Republic, which I have to say... Oh, the, 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 the football. Yeah, that was my favorite, my favorite story of 2014, my favorite Ch- Ch- China story of 2014, mm. um, if I had to name one. Mm. It was just a delight from beginning to end, and I'm so glad that it's going to be, it's been optioned by Sony and hopefully will be made. Well, now Sony probably won't make it. <laughs> <laughs> they might offend somebody, and yeah, right, right. might offend Zhou uh, Yongkang and, you know. Bosi <laughs> licenses in Chongqing, right? Yeah. right. Anyway, um, back to, to the question. question. I, I think I, I'm we're stalling. Both, yeah. Okay. We have no answer. We'll fess for this. up. Yeah. We have no. I have no clue. You, I, I, the only thing I could do right now is use Google or Baidu, and uh, that would be wasting Cheating. your time. Right. So let's put a call out to our listeners. If anybody knows an expert on chess in China, that would be an interesting show to do. Yeah, I think it would be. I think it would be really great. Um, it's funny because uh, it's not just chess, but uh, there were, there was a, a question that I answered on Quora yesterday about the popularity of board games more generally in China. And uh, I, I was just talking about how I was walking through, where was that? I think it was Sanli Twin Soho, which was a place I never go. But in the basement of Sanli Twin Soho in one of the buildings, there's a game shop that has all these board games. I mean, just tons of... They're like of, Monopoly and Risk, yeah, yeah. those kind of things. Exactly. I mean, that, you know, the more popular you know, German-derived ones like Settlers of Catan and stuff like that. And there were people, tons of people... Um, all on tables spread outside this little shop in this mall, all playing board games and smoking like chimneys, and it looked like a whole lot of fun. Uh, but wow, uh, I had no idea that there was. I mean, I knew that there was like a big Magic the Gathering community here. But anyway, chess. But I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, there's already you know two ma- ma- major kinds of Chinese chess that are extremely popular. Uh, it's kind of well, a matty, geeky what's, what's kind the of other thing. one? Go. You're thinking, yeah. Of- yeah, weichi. It's not really chess, but yeah, it's it's, well, it's you know stuff on a board where you move shit around and there's, there's some also, vague military connotations. Yeah, you know, I mean, junqi. I don't have you ever played junqi. No, uh, junqi is awesome. Uh, junqi. Do you ever, you remember the old board game Stratego? 
No. You, you never played Stratego? It, I'm pretty sure I'm that Stratego, board game illiterate. Uh, Stratego was completely taken from Jinchi. Jinchi was my favorite game growing up. Uh, uh. My, my, it's played, again, on, it's on a little, usually paper board that comes folded up inside this little thing with tiles. Anyway, yeah, games, gaming culture in China. That would be really great. I'm, I'm really curious to see whether, uh, you know, sort of paper and dice games like Dungeons and Dragons will eventually make their way in, into China. I'm going to f- fess up that I was a, a huge D&D geek of when I was when I was younger. Of course uh, you were. This explains my penchant for heavy metal and for the, like the, swords. The aesthetics. Yeah. All my whole aesthetic. Right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> thanks, Sam. That's a, a really good question. Let's go to one last recorded question, if I can find one here. Hi, guys. Everyone who lives in China ends up with some great stories from their own lives. I'd love to hear any good ones that you haven't yet found a way to squeeze into past episodes. Thinking any topic, any length, just a good yarn to share with listeners. Thanks very much. That was from... That was from Matt Sheehan again. He actually sent us two good questions. Uh, And (laughs) wow, what what a fun one. Oh, Maybe you can start. I need some time to think. That's that's, uh, quite a difficult question to answer. Okay, I'm I'm going to tell one. This is, a, this is a funny story. So on the morning of June 3rd, 1989, so this is 16 hours before the shit went down, right? Uh, I got on a train with two bands. Uh, I was playing in, in, in two bands at the time. One of them was Tang Dynasty. It was the early iteration of, of Tang Dynasty. And the other one was called STG, Short Term Gratification, which I was playing guitar in. And uh, it was with an American guy from Arkansas named Sean Andrews. And with my best friend from, from the States, my freshman college roommate who I'd played with all my, I mean, just grew up with him, Drew Sabo. So Drew was out here in China. He had actually arrived the very day that Hui Albang died. Uh, and we had been, you know, he was like the first drummer uh, of Tang Dynasty. So Drew and I were playing in these two bands. And we had been, um, we had a tour arranged for us that was supposed to take us first to a city called Baicheng, which is sort of straddling the border between Inner Mongolia and Jilin province, and then up into uh, the northeast. Uh, we, knowing nothing about what happened, you know, we were on a train overnight. The next day, we arrive in Baicheng. We, we play our show, and then Sean, uh, the, 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 the bass player and guitar player of STG, this little power trio that we were doing, he uh, feuded with the promoter and got in a big fight with him, borrowed a little bit of money from me, and then got on a train and went back to Beijing. He has a very funny story about how he ended up in the U.S. Embassy sitting next to Fang Lijiu, uh, but uh, that's not the story I'm telling here. So then we get, uh, the, the, the next day, we get on, on uh, the train and end up in Chichihar, which is in, in Harbin, I mean, in Heilongjiang province, way the fuck north, near the ex-Soviet border. And while we're up there... One of the best-named uh, places Chi, in China. I love, yeah, Chi Chi <laughs> Yeah, Chi Chi uh, So we, we end up there, and uh, we we play our show the first night. And okay, this, this, at this point, we, we realize that, in fact, there has been this this bloodshed. In, so that was June five. This is June seventh. June seventh. Right, June seventh. So this is, I'm, I don't realize that things have happened until June seventh. So on the night of June seventh, we play our, our first show there, and there is something wrong in the audience. People are very very unhappy, and uh, we we have to get rushed under security back to uh, our our hotel, where it's then I'm, I'm then told that uh, well. The promoter had said that our band, STG, you know, with like two white guys in it, 
was Michael Jackson's backup band. <laughs> That's how we had been promoted. And the audience now had, had only saw, you know, Tang Dynasty, which which had a white drummer, but he was in the back. And so all they saw was three Chinese dudes uh, playing music that was, to them was just completely unintelligible and sounded nothing like Michael Jackson at all. And so they rioted and they burned down the ticket booth and demanded refunds, which had to be given. And for the next night, we still had to play another show there. And so everyone came back the next night and they said, no, 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 it really is Michael Jackson's backup band. And so what did we do? We had my, my, my friend Drew come out and play bass. And we worked up a really quick set, had the, the session drummer from like some shitty karaoke band just, you know, playing just dum, stats. Because the drums don't matter. Because the drums don't really. and, and we played a bunch of like Pink Floyd songs. We played like Comfortably Numb and I'm the, you know, wailing the, the, the David Gilmore solo, the comfortable, the, both of them. And, and uh, you know, thinking the whole time, oh my God, you know, Beijing is in flames and, and what am I going to do? But I'm more worried about getting lynched by this angry mob of drunken Dumbe oh, people. Drunken Dumbe, right? But, so that, that was how I spent, you know, I mean, it was just, it was so weird. Um, it's it's just hard for me to explain how bizarre that was. You know, twenty five years ago. That is, I I don't really have a story to match that. The only thing that I I've I can think of at this time is um, in 1997, I flew to Pakistan, to Islamabad, and then I rode a bicycle up to the Karakoram Highway and then back into China and Xinjiang and around Xinjiang for a few months. And then I ended up back in Kashgar uh, and I met an Australian guy who was interested in, in going with me on my bicycle. So he bought a bike, a really shitty bike, big guy with red hair and a big beard. Justin was his name, Justin Smith. Um, and if you're listening by some chance, Justin, hello. I hope you um, recovered from your injury. <laughs> yeah. So um, we uh, uh, set out from Kashgar on bikes. We rode to Qinghai on the Southern Silk Road and then down to Lhasa. And we'd spent about more than three months in high mountain desert. And by the time we got to Lhasa, it was uh, already, I think, December uh, it was the middle of winter, and we'd been at high altitudes in deserts, like basically suffering on our bikes for months on end. And we got to last, and it was time to party. So the first night, we go to underneath the Patala Palace. Uh, there's the square there, which is called, what is it called? Liberation Square or something generic. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and uh, there was a nightclub called JJ's, I guess named after the famous JJ's in Beijing. And we go to the nightclub and proceed to get absolutely smashed on whiskey. Um, and, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm a kind of a sweet drunk, but Justin was one of I, those. I can attest to that. Uh, one of, was one of those, like, aggressive drunks. And I don't know what he did, but he pissed off some Tibetan kind of big shot types that were in the nightclub. And... Um, you know, next thing I saw him, he'd been stabbed. Two, oh, two, I think two of these Tibetans stabbed him in the back and there was blood like coming out. You know, his jacket was all messed up with cuts in, and there was blood coming out of the back of his jacket. And I, I, I saw him and I grabbed him and I like hustled him out of the club because there was this, you know, angry mob of Tibetans wanting to basically lynch him. Um, and got him in a taxi and was going to go home to our hotel. But he was in a rage, in a kind of a, you know, the red rage of like extreme whiskey drunkenness or something. He opened the door of the taxi and just fell out onto the streets and then ran off, you know, <laughs> oh into God. the lights of Lhasa and disappeared. And he didn't come back. <clears throat> Next morning at the hotel, uh, he's not there. 
and I'm worried, so uh, I, there's nothing I can do. Eventually, the hospital uh, calls, and I go to some hospital in Lhasa, and I find him completely bandaged up, his head, his back, his arms. And not after he ran away from the cab, he'd gone to, there's, a, I think, a little nunnery, if I recall, it's somewhere, if you're looking up at the Patala Palace, it's on the left, and it's on a little hill. And apparently, he'd try to climb up this hill kind of like almost like a cliff um because he thought i well well he was drunk um some nuns saw this red-headed bearded kind of yeti like creature (laughs) climbing up the hill and they started throwing stones at him so (laughs) nuns so his head was completely bruised and smashed from the stones so he let me get this right that he got drunk and then got stoned (laughs) (laughs) and knifed in between (laughs) So I don't think I've told that story Stoned by ever nuns. on the record. Oh my god, you know, that's that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> that was last. That was my introduction to Tibetan culture, which is why I maybe don't think of them as um, oh, so peace loving. <laughs> Richard, <Gere. laughs> uh, well, that was fun. Yeah. Oh, I mean, thanks, thanks, memory. Matt. Yeah, well, wow. Um, let's uh, let's do this again, like I said, and. Uh, for now, why don't we end the show with some discussions, which we will, um, some recommendations, which we'll definitely try to put on the damned uh, podcast page, right? We will try. Okay, all right. Stefano, this is all you, man. Um, okay, I got one. I'm going to, oh, no, actually, you always go first, so let's let you go first. I know. Mine's but, uh, related to Tibet, so. I know. forgot what my recommendation You want me to go first? Oh, yeah. B- b- break well, break or, tradition. Well, let me think for a minute. All right, so mine is an obituary, actually, for a guy by the name of Tashi Tsering. Uh, Tashi Tsering, exemplar of the dilemmas of modern Tibet, died on December 5th, age 85. This is in The Economist. And it, it's really a fascinating story about this this guy who was born to a peasant family and was basically sold to uh, the theocracy, uh, was you know made basically the, the sexual slave of a, of, of a monk uh, and has uh, basically been on both sides. I mean, he's been, you know, just He's been bowed by the Tibetan Buddhists and, and by, the by the Communist Party. Party. <laughs> right. I mean, he's, he's just sort of like, uh, I, 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 I posted this on Facebook, and what did I say? I said, um, obituary of a man who really does seem to have embodied the, the dilemmas of modern Tibet between two worlds, neither of which was without seriously fucked up shit. <laughs> um, and he, they, this poor guy, I mean, it, amazing, though. It's a really, really uh, very poignant and I think quite uh, w- w- worthwhile read uh, for an obituary. So that's in The Economist. It's, it just came out. Um, hat tip to David Wolf for linking to that on Twitter first. And for me, I would like to recommend uh, a, an article by a previous guest on Seneca, Christina Larson. I think it's in Bloomberg. Yeah, that's a great it's, one. Though, it's yeah. about the world's largest dating, gay dating app. Um, and the the founder of this company is just a fascinating guy. He was a Herbe cop, and he was gay. He ran a website, a kind of forum for gay people. And when he was outed and basically requested by his work unit, the police uh, department he was working in, to either shut the site or, or, or quit, he quit. And the site is now uh, being invested uh, in by venture capitalists, um, you know, v- millions of dollar uh, valuation. Uh, just a great story, I think, about contemporary China and the interesting people who can emerge from all kinds of places in this country. You know, I'm 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 actually 
one of the things that I'm, I'm happy about in China is how the LGBT community seems to be not as doing okay. Yeah, I mean, relative. You know, I, I, I mean, nothing's perfect here at all. I agree. But, I mean, we I'm, did I'm, a podcast recently. Right, you weren't right. around. I wasn't. LGBT but issues, I, I, but it, I heard. It I was left good. that podcast feeling much happier than I thought I would. Uh, I'm very glad to hear it. On that happy note, uh, I want to wish everybody a very happy 2015. Uh, we will continue to bring you, I hope, interesting and uh, and and fun stories and, and guests and and uh, good discussions on all things related to China. And uh, happy holidays to everybody, and happy New Year to everyone. And we will see you next week, as always. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>